people smart, enabling organisations and individuals to be disability inclusive and accessible. Hello everyone, this is Jodie Greer. I am the founder of Be People Smart and I'm here today with the wonderful Mandy Orlack to bust some more myths for you. So before we tell you um, what myth we're busting today, I will ask Mandy to introduce herself. Oh, well, hello, Jodie. Great to be here. And thank you for that lovely introduction to be called wonderful. It's always nice. Um, so hello, everyone. As Jodie said, my name is Mandy Orlack. I am, first of all, I'm a mum to a child with special educational needs who is now nine. Uh, I am also a lawyer for my sins, so please don't hold that against me. Um, I've been a lawyer for, practising lawyer for about 20 years, and I have two practice areas. Uh, The first is employment law, which I've been working in exclusively all that time. And then in the last five or six years, I developed an interest in SEND law due to my own personal circumstances and Um, I'm really glad because it helps you to help us (laughs) that's right and uh, for the last five years I have been um on my well say on my own I have a business partner Sean Kennedy and we established Talum Law so that we could work around our own children young adults now uh in Sean's case um to 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 manage our work and personal professional commitments brilliant thank you so Today we're going to be talking mainly around education um, and our myth, um, primary myth, because there's always more that we come across in conversation. (laughs) Our primary myth today is that a child who gets good grades at school can't have educational needs. So we'll come on to that in a lot more um, detail. So first of all, Mandy, I guess as a parent, because it's not always obvious, how can we, you know, identify our children's needs? It, it, it can be tough, right? It, it can, yes. I mean, and I, in my own situation, it was very obvious that my child, um, what his needs were, you know, he he stopped talking when he was two. So it straight away it was very easy to see that he had a speech and language need that, that I had to address. But I do see it very often in my own network where parents are a little bit unsure because their children are managing to cope, at least on the surface they are. And at school they seem to be, but then behind the scenes at home, they're really struggling. And the parents, of course, see all the effort that goes into the child just having to put so much effort into learning because they're finding it harder and I suppose my, I always hear the phrase that, you know, as parents, you are the expert of your child. And I, and I do agree with that. I do think that you know your child best. But when it comes to, if you're trying to look at securing help for them within school, you do need to get the, the experts, the professionals involved. Because whilst the legal framework says that, you know, parents' views are important, I still maintain that it's the, and I think it does play out like this, that it's the experts and what their reports say that that carry the weight and determine what help your child will get. But I, I certainly think that if you have any inkling as a parent that your child, um, for example, has speech and language uh, needs, speak to a professional, go and find that professional. If you think the child has got sensory needs, you might be looking at a, an occupational therapist to help with that or or a physiotherapist if they've got gross motor needs. So don't be afraid to to get those people in, involved and get them involved early. I think that's brilliant advice. And I also would say, because of course, like the way the support structures and educational systems work in different countries, it's going to be different for different people. But another support mechanism and a space for advice from kind of lived experience can even be sort of social network uh, groups and things where parents have been there and done this, right? Yeah, and very often that's quite often the starting point for parents. You know, I'm part of a, a Facebook group myself, several Facebook groups, because when you first, and I've just taken myself back to when I realized that my son wasn't developing along the lines that, you know, the health visitor said he should be, you know, wasn't, he didn't have 200 words in his vocabulary. Um, and it can be really scary because the whole 
and I know you don't like this phrase and we're going to come on to it later, but special educational needs world seems quite daunting and you don't know where to start. So very often you want to meet other people who are in the same boat as you. And this is what social media is great for, those Facebook groups that connecting people. I mean, there are people in my network, other parents who I've never met you know, in the country, but they feel like they know me because we've been connected for so long on social media and, and we share our experiences. And, and very often, sometimes they will have a tip to say, look, I had that problem. This is what we did and it worked really well. And that can get a debate going and a discussion which can really help other people. So, yes, absolutely, you know, draw upon that as well. I think you've also touched on something really important, which is language, and yeah. certainly my preferences. So, yeah, I personally really dislike the term special being used um, in any of this just because it has a connotation with it and it can often lead to assumptions even amongst children to what that actually means. Um, we've we've moved away significantly from using it in the workplace. So, yeah, you see, I thought that was quite interesting you said that, Jodie, because I haven't actually personally come across that term in the workplace. The The term I always use is is the language of the statute. So I'd, I'd refer to somebody having a disability. Um, so it's quite, quite interesting that you say that, but I'm sure that there must be in some pockets out there employers who do use that language. But it, it took me by surprise when you said that, I have to admit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you come at this pretty much from a legal standpoint, from a, you know, everyday um, conversation piece. And certainly, I mean, I've been sort of very heavily involved in the disability world of business for 12 plus years. And you do still get it sometimes where people will say special needs. Mm. Um, And I know we're going to talk about language and the fact the educational word is important to you. But um, it's very seldom now. I'd say a decade ago, it was still actually very prevalent, even with the DDA in place in the UK. So that's right. the Disability Discrimination Act, if anyone's not aware. So we've moved on to the Equality Act. I think there's been a bit more visibility. Um, and I think I think it is helping. But the reality is, I'd say a vast majority of people aren't actually aware of what legislation's out there when it comes to disability inclusion. So it's just about what language people hear, you know, what they kind of mimic um, and what they believe to be okay. And actually, I can say just last week, I was speaking to a new organisation who pinpointed special needs to be inclusive. They had really good intention on their website and had some special needs um, services available. And I I gave them some guidance on this language. Yes. Um, But yeah, so, I mean, I do see it used. And I know, you know, you talk about it from that kind of the language of the statute. Um, But I'd love to see it more inclusive. And I know in Wales in the UK, they've actually recently moved away from SEN, so special educational needs, to ALN additional learning needs well they haven't entirely actually because I did look this up when you said that now I am not an expert in that jurisdiction so I'm I'm going to put my hand up to that (laughs) but what I do understand and this is on a very brief look is that the term additional learning needs is is broader so it takes into account the the term special educational needs as well but it, it's it's like an add-on they've put so it includes other things as well so I don't think they've entirely got rid of it um so it is still there from my understanding but you know I'm happy to be corrected on that because I'm as I said I don't practice in Wales so I'm just curious and this is obviously more rather than as a lawyer I guess as a as a person as a mum yeah um what your thoughts are on that kind of language additional learning needs um to be quite honest I um I have always my my I like precision so I like using the language of the statute because it's very clear what I'm talking about and it's got very specific meaning so I don't really attach too much about the the connotations it's much more about using the statute to get what my child needs and that's what I'm more interested in rather than the language and to be quite honest I don't really have a I'm quite neutral on the term special I I take your point what you say and you know that's your opinion and you know that's that's fine and I understand you know other people will also have that I don't have an opinion one way or another on it I for me it's much more about 
what can I do to use the legal framework to to ensure that the local authority are complying with their obligations, that my son's, whatever you want to call it, special educational needs, additional needs are being met, you know, they're being identified and they're being met um, so that he can fulfill his potential. So I, I kind of focus more on the end product, really, rather than the language. But I, I do take your point. And I think you've also obviously got your priorities in the right place because, you know, you are a mum first. Um, so just thinking about that then and the steps you can take. Mm. Now, for our listeners, this, this may well be quite UK centric because you're also thinking about sort of UK schooling system and support structure. Yeah. But also I think some of it could potentially resonate and also maybe where there isn't such a um, strategic report, support structure in place, maybe they could take some of this to see how they could sort of influence change in, in their own countries. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I know my colleague certainly has seen that, you know, in other countries, they sort of look in amazement, believe it or not, at what we have here, um, because they just do not have the same infrastructure. So, so yes, if this is, you know, going out to different parts of the world and people are listening, then they might take away some, some of the good things that we do have in place as well here, because it's not all bad. (laughs) So thinking of the good, yes. Um, what support is actually available when it works yeah. for educational needs in the UK today? Okay. Now I'm going to apologize if I use the term send. I know it's fine, you term. use your language as well. <laughs> okay. Um, so in mainstream education in, in this country, if um there is a notional budget that schools have to meet the um the needs of children who present with SEN and that's a notional budget of six thousand pounds and it might be that for some children their their needs are such that they can be met with minor modifications that that are within a school's resources it's when the child's needs are are more significant than that and shoot through that budget that you'd be looking at applying for an education healthcare plan, otherwise known as an EHCP. And so, so for example, um, uh, I'll take my child. He's, he's not in mainstream, but let's just say he was. Um, he is someone that needs to have a, a teaching assistant with him to keep him safe to also help him access learning. Now, if you think about the salary of that person, that's straight away going to cut through that budget, that notional budget of £6,000. So that would be indicative of you looking at applying for an education healthcare plan. And when you get into that territory, that's where the local authority gets involved. So the local authority, they issue plans and they maintain them. And an EHCP, for for anyone who's not familiar with that, is is a comprehensive or it should be a comprehensive document, which all participants, including parents, including the child, including the school, other professionals, all contribute to. And there are different sections of it. Um, I think it's A to K. Section A is is where you, you paint a picture about the child. So you talk about them. So the idea is that anyone picking up this document could read it and get a really good understanding of of the child, not only what their educational needs are, their health needs, social care needs, but also them as a as a person, you know, what they like. So in my child's one, you know, it's it's got um he was really into the Gruffalo when he we first got the plan. So it talks about his love of the Gruffalo story. Um, you know, and he likes he really likes calendars at the moment and um, we discovered he's got special skills so it it would talk about those sort of things which are not you know strictly educational but are about him his his interests so that's in section a and that's I think it's it's important um, but from a legal point of view the other sections probably are important but I think anyone who's working with a child needs to understand what what makes them tick what motivates them because that's how you get engagement with learning um, and then in section B, you would look at the needs for the child. So you'd look at, um, you know, um, what are their areas of needs? And they're typically grouped into four categories. So you have uh, social communication being one, sensory and or physical needs being another, 
cognition and learning being another and so on. So you'd identify the needs, where what they find difficult. You'd also point out what they can do well. But it because this is primarily about getting the support need, there is the emphasis on, on what they find difficult. And then you've got some other sections which also might look at what their health needs are. So, for example, if they're on medication, that, that would also be documented in there. Um, if they had certain social uh, care needs, that would also um, feature in the plan. Um, but the the other one that the big the big section is section F, which is meant to pair up with the needs. So you've identified the needs in the document, and then you've got to think about okay, we've identified what areas the child finds difficult. Now we need to think about what we can do to help minimise that um, difficulty. So that's what we call special educational provision. That's in section F. And we also document in an EHCP what your goals are, because there's no, you know, you've got to have something to work towards. So you've identified these areas of difficulty, but you also want to work, okay, what what targets do we need to feature, we need to work on? What are our long-term goals for this, this child? So that everyone is working on, you know, on the same hymn sheet. We're all working towards the same aim. Um, and then other, there are other miscellaneous sections to do with budgets and so on. And, and then there's a section which deals with um, uh, the documents that help made up this. So everyone knows that this, this EHCP is based on reports, it's based on evidence, it's not just conjured up out of thin air. And so you can always go and access the reports which underpin that EHCP as well. So that's the sort of broad skeleton if you like of an EHCP and that's what can support a child or young person in education up to the age of 25 potentially provided they remain in education which isn't university. So one of the key things I think as well as part of those plans is and this comes back to the myth obviously you're you're working out where, where the child needs more support but you're also um flagging you know things that they are actually very good at and so this comes back to even if a child's getting for instance good grades at school in maybe one area maybe they're an absolute wizard maths yeah um but they might really struggle with literature or something um you, you can then pinpoint that because I think sometimes um even children can be really good at masking absolutely and that's <laughs> what we see a lot I mean uh, you would not believe how many times I've heard parents, you know, this is in the chat groups and on Facebook, where they say, oh, you know, my child finding it really difficult. But I've been told that because they, you know, they get good grades, that they're not two years behind. I don't know where this magical two years comes from, but I hear it a lot, you know, so I'm not going to get an EHCP for my child. And that's, that is a total myth. You know, it's just not true because and again, it's back to language and definitions. If you look back at the definition, and I'm not going to bore you with it, <laughs> but um, there's a definition of special educational needs. It's in, the, it's in our legislation called the Children and Families Act. And it talks about, doesn't talk about attainment levels. Attainment levels are obviously important, but it talks about the way in which you learn. So if, you know, somebody, a child is doing really well, but it takes so much more effort for them to be able to, to work hard uh, to, to get that, that is a difficulty with learning. So it's, it is so much more than attainment levels. And if you also look at, we have a code of practice as well, uh, the SEND code of practice 2015. I think it's section six of that code, which talks about the broad areas that I've talked about in an EHCP. So that tells you straight away, that's a big clue that it's not just about attainment, you know, emotional, mental health, it can also impact on on education, your sensory. If you are not able to regulate your sensory needs, that's going to uh, prevent you from accessing the curriculum. You know, and I know with with my own son, you know, he's very easily distracted. You know, he's um, if too much information is on a piece of paper, he's overwhelmed because his visual sensory need is just saying, oh, that's that's too much. Um, so, so yes, it is so much more than, than just getting, you know, the good, good grades at school, you know, it's that whole process of, of learning. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, personally, I would love to see adaptive education as standard, you know, rather than parents' evenings be, oh, he or she's a pleasure to teach, always polite, and these kind of things, to actually be picking up this kind of thing for every student, every child, um, so that they can learn in a way that works for them. And I get that's not easy because, you know, there are budget constraints and, you know, teacher training goes, you know, to a finite level and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that doesn't mean that this can't change in the future. So I have my eyes out. Hoping. Yeah. And, and, you know, just picking up what you said about teacher training. I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a teacher, although sometimes I feel it because as a parent, you've got so many different hats on. Um, and sometimes you know, people say to me, oh, are you sure you're not a speech and language therapist? Or, you know, you, you do quite well with that. You, you know, you should teach. But it's because I know my child so well. Um, and I, I can see, you know, where he is a visual learner. Um, my son's got a diagnosis of um, autistic spectrum condition. And he was two, he was two when I, I was pretty convinced that he was going to get this diagnosis. Three when he actually got the diagnosis. And I, I could see that he, if I spoke to him, just nothing was going in. But if I drew something or had a symbol or a picture, you know, that old saying, a, a picture speaks a thousand mm-hmm. words. The communication then just significantly improved. And it also helped calm him if he was getting upset about something. And I do think that with, with teachers, if from what I gather, Special educational needs is not really a it's it's a part of it, but it's not a focus. And I think if there could be a bit more, um, I suppose, a, a bit more of an emphasis on the different learning styles that children who have. And, you know, there are I mean, look at the prevalence rates for um, for autistic children. I think it's one in 27 boys I read are being diagnosed. So these this profile of child is going to be seen more more and more in the classroom so if teachers at their teach training stage have got a better idea that actually this is a good strategy for helping children who have got this diagnosis or you know or this is a good strategy for children who've got visual impairments and incorporate that more generally in their teaching that would I think certainly help those children more generally and as you said we've all got different learning styles whether whether you've got a disability or not yeah, definitely. I mean, I would love to see um, more of this absolutely as part of sort of standard teacher training. Not only would it actually improve um, the education for the students themselves, but I actually see it would really support the teachers because as one human being, I've got to be honest, I can't imagine being in charge of a class of like 30 <laughs> children, right? Not but- cry. <laughs> As one human being with all these children, and of course, unbeknownst to you, they, uh, you know, definitely, you know, they've all got their own learning methods. You may, you know, recognize that um, or their preferred learning styles, I should say. But you may not even recognize that because you're so sort of busy and you know what curriculum you need to work to and all of these things. And so what can sometimes be seen as behavioral issues, for instance, Sometimes it's not even that, it's frustration, it's sometimes embarrassment because children feel like they should, you know, get this like their peers are and it's just not going in. Um, But it's probably just not being delivered in a way that's working for them. But the teacher doesn't understand that, the child doesn't understand that. And there's this kind of conflict, um, which is quite a strong word, but, you know, there's this conflict that it's not helping the teacher either to be able to manage an entire class and help all of their students to achieve what they need to. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think, um, yeah, I, I I also think as a teacher to have in your, you know, this um, different skills and different, you know, ways of, of teaching, um, just in your, your, your armory of um, uh, tools is a really useful thing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'm thinking about teachers and schools. Uh, I'm kind of going back to some of the stuff you were talking about with local authority, because I know some parents who have really struggled to um, get support for their children and they get really frustrated at the school. And I know they've had some quite heated discussions with head teachers. Is it the school they should be frustrated with? So... 
yes, I, I also see that quite a lot where parents do get frustrated because they say, say for example, the child has got um, an EHCP and they don't think that what's in the EHCP is being delivered or um, they think that the EHCP doesn't actually fully identify all the areas of difficulty. I quite often see parents will, you know, barge up, you know, knock on the door of the head teacher's um, office and they will, you know, that they'll start to, I suppose, uh, uh, take out their frustrations um, by, you know, sort of downloading all their um, concerns with with the head teacher or the school. And that's not the right people they should be uh, talking to because, and I understand why parents do it because, you know, their everyday interaction is, is with the school. You know, that's, that's who we, we see when, you know, when we drop our children off at the school gate, it's the teachers. So, so naturally that's going to be the person you think you should be addressing these concerns with, but with an EHCP, it's actually the local authority that are responsible for that document, for, for issuing it, for maintaining it. So if there are concerns that, for example, what's in the EHCP isn't being delivered, then parents need to stop complaining to the school and actually invoke the formal complaints procedure uh, and take up the issue with the local authority. Thank you. Um, for, for well, for my own awareness, but certainly for our listeners who may be wondering the same as me, yeah. is this the same across the board? Because I know, for instance, in the UK we've got academy schools, and that they're self-funded, so the funding's different. Does the EHCP piece work the same? Yeah, it works exactly the same. So it doesn't matter if it's an academy or a maintained school; it's the the local authority that maintain the EHCP. So that, that does the status of the school is irrelevant in, in that situation. Um, now, if a child doesn't have um, an EHCP and a parent is obviously getting frustrated, they think they need help. Um, you obviously want the school to actually help you with that process of applying for one. And but it's the, ultimately the school can't say you know be the decision maker to say your child is going to get an EHCP but they can certainly play a part in you know helping the parents to get an EHCP but the school themselves can apply for an EHCP needs assessment um, as well it's not just the parents that do it and you would hope that if a school does see that a child does need more support that they would they would take the lead on that. That's really interesting to know. And do you know if it differs with private education? Because obviously the funding then completely different. Yeah, so um, there is, and that's another myth. You know, we said there was a lot of myths here. <laughs> but, um, there is a myth that, um, you know, if you attend a private school that you can't have an EHCP. Well, you can. You can, you can certainly have an EHCP. Um, where it can get a little bit contentious is if the local authority think that you are after the fees being paid. <laughs> Um, but, and I have seen cases where they have been paid, but that's usually when there's been quite a fight, but you, there's no reason why a child attending a private school could not have an EHCP. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, you, you, you give him more myths, um, which I think is actually really <laughs> helpful. Talking of which you actually bust more myths yourselves uh, with your Monday myth buster, don't you? You've been watching them, haven't you, Jodie? <laughs> I have. Yes, I am. Um, so on a on a Monday, uh, we've been trying to get into this um, habit because, you know, parents like it. They're finding it really useful. Um, I, I do a post uh, across all our um, social media channels, actually. So I put it on on my LinkedIn, but we have it on Facebook and Instagram, which is where I know a lot of parents are. And um, we will take a myth from the send world and we will try and bust it so it's usually based on things that um you know we have seen and experienced both as you know we, we draw upon our knowledge as as parents so you know the myths that we see parents you know believe and we've already discussed one of them you know that my child isn't two years behind so I can't get any HCP um but also just you know a lot of myths even that that schools might be 
you know, under, you know, because there are a lot of misconceptions and myths amongst the professionals themselves who, who work in this area. So, you know, we've, um, at the moment, we've been focusing a, a lot on disability discrimination in schools, because I don't think a lot of, there's a, there's a lack of awareness, I think, ab- about that within, within schools and what could amount to discrimination. Um, but yeah, so we, that's our, our Monday thing. And, um, on a Friday, I do a fictional fact, which looks at myths, but in the workplace. So yes, I, I do like busting myths. Well, you're in the right place and uh, it's great to share. How do people find your myth busting? So um, if you are on Facebook or Instagram, uh, you can find us at Talem Law. That's T-A-L-E-M Law. Um, and if you are on LinkedIn and you would like to follow me, you can follow me at Mandy Orlack. That's A-U-L-A-K. And Thank I you. usually post them in my personal capacity there. Brilliant. I can share links as well with this episode to help people to locate you. Um, I've actually I like the fact you you talk about, you know, sort of disability discrimination as well in schools, because it's something I'm actually really passionate about is trying to get disability inclusion and accessibility into schools. One, I'd love teachers to be educated, and we've kind of touched on that. But even for children and for you know students of all ages to actually be educated and to understand the values and to understand you know that the the skill set as well, for instance, that often comes because of disability, because of neurodiversity, um, and it, it's really difficult because <laughs> I'm kind of naming and shaming, but. You know, I've even tried the Department of Education here in the UK, and I'll be frank, they were particularly disappointing, not because they didn't give me what I wanted, but they were extremely dismissive of the subject and basically just said, oh, each school needs to decide if disability is something that matters to their community, which is a well moment. So it's not easy to get to every school in the country to have that kind of influencing conversation um, and see if, you know, you can help them make a difference. But also, you know, they are kind of limited with regards what they have to deliver to the curriculum, the funding they have, et cetera. Um, I, I'll be honest, I've kind of come to a bit of a sort of barrier. Um, any any thoughts around, I don't know, maybe trying to get into schooling? Um, I mean, it... it... It's, it's a tough one. I mean, all schools are, you know, they are duty bound to um, follow the the Equality Act. So they are bound by by that. So you would hope that there would be a, a basic level of uh, awareness about um, protected characteristics and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. I mean, in relation to... Um, you know what you said about funding and really the only effective way is on an individual basis in in my experience um but certainly if they're and we've we've tried to do it as well that training there is a lack of awareness I mean it, it has surprised me when I have done some training um that Senkos are really unaware of the legal framework um which I know sounds a little bit controversial and I'm not talking I'm making a very general statement there but I have delivered training where people have been surprised by some of the things that we've said about the funding there is a huge myth with schools that what's in an EHCP you know they they look at all this provision that might be in there and they they're automatically thinking how much it's going to cost and whether they can deliver it. And of course, that's not for them to worry about because that's a local authority responsibility. So, you know, even amongst Senkos and professionals in a school, um, there are those myths as well. So the only thing I, I could think of, if you're, you want to sort of make sure that myths like that don't ap- appear, would be as part of uh, the training that, that that teachers have to to have a, an element of, that that looks at this, so that they are comfortable 
with the legal framework and they understand it and they know what what is out there and what they could ask for if they can identify a child that that needs additional help yeah so it sounds like it really is a case of going school by school which is quite the task but it could Mm. be so worthwhile well you know what you're a very determined person (laughs) you know if anyone can do it yeah I mean that for me is definitely one of the key priorities ultimately I would just I'd love to also get it into the actual education system for the students themselves so that you know growing up people understand all the value um, to disability inclusion and what accessibility really looks like and how you kind of embed that and stuff because to me the workplace is too late to start that education. Oh, totally, totally. And and what you've just said is just sort of music to my ears because you've got to start at the education level. And and this is why I feel so passionate about mainstream education being inclusive because it's not only for the individual who has the d- disability to feel that they are part of society, but it's also for their peers to understand that we are all different and somebody a child might have a disability but can be has a lot of strengths that doesn't mean that they are not able to to do things just with minor modifications can make all the difference and if you grow up with that that view that I think then translates into the workplace because it's cult it's cultural change that you're 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 making a difference with and that's that's where I think you start young and 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 then that will that will translate into the workplace because what you don't want to happen is and we do I suppose we we are seeing a bit of this is that there's um lots of people come with who haven't grown up with people who've got disabilities they don't there's maybe a sort of negative view about what they think people can do um and we come with a lot of uh misconceptions we don't really understand I mean I'm going on off onto a subject now that I talk about a lot and that's reasonable adjustments they don't really understand what is possible um I mean I'll take my own son who you know at age three was uh what you and I hate using this term but what you would at the severe end of the spectrum he had a lot of needs he was in nappy still he was non-verbal or pre-verbal as I like to say and he struggled with attention he had a lot of sensory processing needs and I was really worried about how he was going to sit in a classroom and be educated but with the right provision in place he has you know he has come along brilliantly and he is doing things now that are astounding people and because he's had that right support in place he he's now able to communicate his needs you can have a conversation with him he can be quite chatty but we've also discovered that he has a special skill Hmm. um and he's um He's basically what's called a calendar savant, which means that if you gave him a date, you know, it could be any date, hundreds of years back or or forwards, he'll be able to tell you what day of the week that was. Yeah. Do you know, I was actually going to ask you before we (laughs) ended this episode to share that because it's mind blowing. What an amazing skill. I struggle to know what day it is today. Um, Why? (laughs) But that, it, that's just, I mean, it's so clever, but the way his mind works and he processes it so quickly. And and you know what? If he didn't have the provision, and this just goes back to my point, like, and it blows me away when I, <laughs> I think about it. He, If he didn't have that um, support in place, we wouldn't know that he could do this. Yeah. You know, and I think it's scratching the surface. I think there is a lot more going on. I, I've, I've now watched him really carefully. And you know, he takes his iPad and he splits the screen in half. Half of the um, screen looks at um, uh, calendars and he's flicking through it so fast that, I mean, I can't even see. It's it's so fast to my eye. And then on the other half, he's looking at um, 
routes like roads and maps so I do think that he's probably going to know the A to Z of London soon you know I mean he's he's um he's really quick and he's he's got a great memory as well but that's because he's had the support in place and so it just shows that with the right support in place everyone can achieve their potential definitely I've got to be honest I didn't even know you could split a screen on an iPad no neither did I and I still don't know how you do it but I know you can do it because <laughs> he does it <laughs> brilliant that is but yeah no thank you for sharing that I, I know there's going to be people now sort of yeah just blown away and wanting to give him a date to, to tell him what day it is well you know we we are thinking about doing a Facebook live on it oh that would be brilliant <laughs> I have to ask you one of my key questions I ask all of my guests because I, I do, I always say this, but I think it's because I'm a real Harry Potter fan. But if you had a magic wand, so it can be anything because this is magic. Right. If you had a magic wand that can change one thing to make education more inclusive, what would you change? Oh, God. <laughs> that is that is a really difficult question. I mean, um, I think there's a couple of, well, for, for me, I think the framework is can be quite confusing for parents. You know, you've got the um, Children and Families Act with the regulations that sit underneath that. You've got this code of practice. All of that is to is around special educational needs. And then you've got the Equality Act, which is about reasonable adjustments. And parents can often feel quite confused about how these two legal frameworks sort of sit and there is an overlap and in in that overlap parents can get really worried about you know have I bought have, have I made the right complaint you know what, what should I do and I do think that if there was a simplification of that process you know maybe just having the Equality Act applying and covering special educational needs as well um, that would certainly uh, remove some of the confusion that I see um, Another view I've heard expressed, and it's not necessarily, it's not my view, but I have heard this a lot, is that some people say there should just, there shouldn't be a separate schools that, you know, there should just be mainstream education for everyone, because then it falls upon schools, can't suggest that your child goes off to a special school. Um, I've got, I'm not quite sure about that one, I have to say, um, because I think that sometimes it is needed, but I have heard that view. And I do know that one local authority got rid of all their special schools and tried to really just push mainstream education. And it actually worked quite successfully. Although I now think that they've recognized there is a need for special schools as well. So I think that they are there are now one or two special schools appearing in that local authority, but um that's certainly you know one view of how you could transform and make education more inclusive yeah that's really interesting actually um yeah I how everyone even with really significant educational needs all work together in mainstream school well I've seen it I have seen it and you until you actually see it people don't realize what's possible yeah Um, and you know if you've got no other choice then you know you make it happen yeah and I, I mean I mean also it sounds great and it sounds so much more you know inclusive and so much more like a community um but yeah I, I've just I've never I've never heard that happening to be honest so that's that's really intriguing yeah but but at the same token I do understand why um, you know, my own son goes to a special school and it's, you know, it's a good school and it's the right place for him right now. But I think that there are sometimes the default position is that, you know, if if your child has got a diagnosis that they need to go to a certain type of school. And I don't think that is the case. You know, I have seen children with various, you know, different conditions and thrive in mainstream because they had the right support. But that, of course, does depend on getting the right infrastructure in within a mainstream setting. Yeah, and obviously from the flip side as well, because in kind of linked for what you were just saying, I think the risk sometimes when you have what they call special schools yeah. is that it, it can sometimes be too easy 
to try and push someone with some educational needs to that school rather than support them in mainstream education. I'll give you examples. I've known um, a child with Down syndrome, perfectly capable of being educated in mainstream education, but as default was expected Mm. to go into a special school. She did go into mainstream education um, and it worked very well. But I think that's the other risk is certain, you know, disabilities. It's kind of half expected that, well, you won't go into mainstream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I said, I I have seen it both, you know, through my um, personal network and and professionally that, you know, you would be surprised um, by how these children are are thriving. But it's, it's about having the right attitude. You know, if you've got a school that are really inclusive and embrace um, and embrace inclusivity, that makes a huge difference. Um, and if there's that awareness and understanding of how you can use the legal framework to, to get what your child needs, um, it can just transform the experience for that child. But, you know, I do take on board that there are some children that, and it's a, and it's a preference for parents. There are some parents who, do have a view that their child would be happier, um, would thrive more in a special school than, than a mainstream. And, you know, as the law currently stands, that's, you know, that is their, their choice. Um, you know, they, they don't have to go into to mainstream. They can look at that. Uh, but then you get into a whole whole uh, argument about <laughs> about whether that's the right school or not, which is subject to many appeals. But but um, at the moment, you know, we do we do have that that choice. But the law, the actual default position is mainstream. But people forget that. <laughs> and it is a very powerful right because you can really build the infrastructure into a school there because, but you know, by definition, mainstream schools are not set up to meet the needs of, of children with disabilities and special educational needs. So you've got to put that infrastructure in. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, the law is actually on the parents' side there if they want mainstream education. Thank you. I think that's actually really helpful as well, because I do think there's going to be a lot of parents out there that aren't aware of that. And I think that can really help them with their own, you know, if, if they do want their children to go into mainstream school, it helps them to get that push. And so they're not sidelined. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think also just visiting some schools to see what's possible as well. Um, you know, I think you just got to have a very open mind about it. You know, I'm, I'm going through a point at the moment where my son, his, his contemporaries, my friends, are they're all thinking about the next stage of education. So secondary school is on the horizon. So now there's a frantic look and secondary school can look quite different. But I have seen children as I said you know who who can be in mainstream secondary schools uh and they've got quite profound needs but do do brilliantly excellent that's really nice to know you've honestly you've you've taught me I'm sure you've taught our listeners as well so much today already um yeah I mean it is a complex system but I think what's nice about how you shared it is you've just made it so much more digestible so I want to say thank you for that oh thank you well I hope so and uh, you know if anyone is listening here who perhaps wants to speak a little bit further you know I'm always happy to to have a chat wonderful thank you um before we close this episode out is there anything else you'd really love people to take away today so that whether that be for schools to make improvements or to support parents, is there any other sort of extra key information or tips you'd really want to share? Um, I think from my own experience as as a parent um, raising an autistic child, I think that you as a parent are in an incredible, powerful position and you are Uh, well certainly in the early years you're the the advocate for your child and it it can seem very I think daunting when you first enter into this world and you don't really know where to where to begin and I would say that a, a good starting point really for parents is is to and I almost have a roadmap I created for myself is to educate yourself on and and don't be don't 
think that you need to know all the answers. You know, you are the expert in the, in the driving seat for leading this. You're, in, you're almost a project manager of this. So build a team around you that can help support your child. You know, I, for example, when my son was not pre-verbal, he couldn't, um, he couldn't communicate and he used PECS, which is Picture Exchange Communication System, which unlocked his communication. And I, and whilst I had a speech and language therapist involved in that side of things, I also wanted to make sure I upskilled myself. So I went on the course as well. So don't be afraid if there is something in your child's EHCP, like, like PECST, for example, or CERTs, that's another one we hear. Don't be afraid to think that you shouldn't go on those courses yourself, and especially um, something like PECST, where you are communication doesn't just stop when the bell rings at the end of the day at school we need to communicate in our lives every day all of the time and I certainly found for me that when I'd taken that step I was just as qualified as the the professional so I could challenge them when needed to so don't be afraid to if something doesn't feel right to you that an expert is saying, don't be afraid to question it. There is nothing wrong with doing that. And don't be afraid to go on these courses, even if you are the only parent or in the minority there, do it, you know, because that is all for the benefit of your child. Thank you so much. I could, I honestly feel like I can hear so many parents listening to this feeling so much more empowered. So I honestly think this is going to be a massive help to a lot of people who are struggling with this support structure. I hope so. So yeah, just, to say again, thank you so much for today. Um, it has been wonderful. And there's a reason I said wonderful at the beginning. You've proven your point. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a real pleasure chatting to you, Mandy. Oh, thank you, Jodie. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. And I hope you've all really enjoyed listening to Mandy and learning um, from her and her experiences and certainly um, her legal knowledge. But yeah, do reach out if you've got any questions. Um, if you just, you know, want to connect, I'm sure Mandy will welcome it. She's already invited you. And as always, I'm always about. So until next time for some more Myth Busting. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please rate us and leave us a review. We really want to know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the amazing guest speakers we have lined up.